The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, thank you that you are such a good God, a better God than we could even come up with if we tried, and that you are the only true God, and you are the God who loves our souls, who delights and messy people who cherishes us. Lord, as we look at your word today, may we be reminded of how you are greater than all the other idols that we place before you, God. Remind us of how you are the one to whom we belong, and you are the one to whom we should worship. And may we share this good news with the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Author Rebecca Pippert tells a story about her family friend named Jack. Jack was a gifted singer, a gifted guitarist, and a gifted songwriter, much like me. And he was playing a gig, and he asked Rebecca and her family to come, or her husband to come and listen. And so they went to this gig at a coffee shop, and she was listening to his lyrics, and she noticed how it reflected many of the sentiments of our age. Disenchantment, disillusion, alienation, disappointment, a deep longing to be connected. She said there was one song in particular in which he had vocalized his anger towards his ex-girlfriend and the recent breakup that they had gone through. Well, the next day, their friend Jack came over to express his gratitude for them coming to the concert and see what they thought. And so they started to get in this discussion, and the topic came up about his uncontrollable anger towards his ex-girlfriend and how he was in bondage to it. And Jack said, I hate being controlled by my anger. And Rebecca responded very astutely. She said, Jack... Whatever controls us really is our God, even if we hate it. And then Jack said, well, I sure need to be controlled by a better God than this. And then he left. And Rebecca Pipper in her book says, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. You know, when we think of idols or gods or lords, we may think about small little statues or great big statues that people bow down to and pray to. But really, anything can be our Lord. Anything can be our God. Anything can be our idol. Whatever controls us, whatever we center our life around, that is the Lord of our life. Now, if you've been here at Jake as well, you know 99 times out of 100, this is the part of the sermon where I say, who or what is Lord of your life? What is pushing God out of your life? But that's not what the passage directs us to today. The question is not so much who is Lord of your life, but who are the Lords of our culture? Who are the Lords of your neighbor's life, your co-worker's life, your family member's life? Who are the false gods that are controlling the people of Green Bay? Today, through the example of the Apostle Paul, we are challenged to be a part of God's redemption of the world by exposing the emptiness and bondage and slavery of the false gods of our culture 
and to uncover for them the one true and satisfying God. If you would, please open up to Acts chapter 17. Uh, We will be looking at verses 16 through 34. Today it's page 926 in the Red Bible, page 1204 in the Children's Bible. As we often do in the series of Acts, we will uh, recap by going to the map, going to the screen, if you could put the map up. So this is Paul's second missionary journey, which started in Antioch, uh, went through Cilicia, Galatia, through Asia, came over to Macedonia. All of this is modern-day Greece now. And Paul uh, visited Philippi and then went down the Route 44 of, uh, or Route 66, sorry, 44 is a highway in St. Louis, the Route 66 of Greece, and came to Thessalonica. Paul is preaching there in Thessalonica. People are coming to faith in Christ. Good things are happening, but people don't like what's going on, and so they persecute Paul. They, they imprison him. But upon release, then Paul and a lot of his people, Luke stays there, but Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy go on to Berea. Now they're going to Berea and they start preaching about Jesus in the synagogues as was their custom. Many of people are coming to faith in Christ. Even some Greeks are coming to faith in Christ. Well, the folks in Thessalonica don't like this and so they come after Paul in Berea. And so the church in Berea decides we're going to send Paul away for his safety. Now Silas and Timothy stay behind, but they send Paul by water, it says, all the way down to Athens. And so here is Paul. He is in Athens today. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Now, just to let you know a little bit about Athens, this is, this is just past their heyday, their glory day, but Athens is still the philosophical think tank of the world. It was home of people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle that lived several hundreds of years before Jesus and Paul. Uh, Athens was home of the first democracy in which they had elected officials that were accountable to the people. Athens was also leading the way in literature literature and art. And so here is Paul, and he has sent the people who brought him, his Uber drivers, back to their hometown, back to Berea, and saying, would you tell Silas and Timothy to come to me in Athens? But here Paul is, all by himself in Athens, in this great metropolis. And as he observes their culture, he looks and contemplates their false gods. And that's where we pick up today's story. So look at verse 16 with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, in order for us to contemplate the gods of our culture, the first thing we have to do is identify the gods of our culture. Now in Athens, it was pretty obvious, pretty easy to identify who their gods were. They had statues and temples to these gods. And so it was clear, these were the, people, the things that they worshiped. Now in Green Bay, we have to dig a little bit deeper. Not much deeper, but a little deeper. And so how do we discover what people's gods are? Well, let's take a coworker, for example. You can look at their office or look at their cubicle. What pictures do they have on the wall? Pictures of their family, pictures of the Packers, pictures of skiing, pictures of the lake house, pictures of sunsets, whatever it might be. These can be windows into understanding what are lords of their life, what they center their life around. Or perhaps your neighbor. When you talk to your neighbor, what is the conversation consumed by? Is it consumed by the weather or their grass or politics? 
This is indications of the lords of our lives. Or even family. What about your family? What about those, those things in your family's life, those unknown sins that they continue to carry on, but is not public because they're ashamed of it? What are those addictions that they have? These are lords of their lives. Now, many of these things, you are probably saying, hey, you know, I have pictures in my office and I talk about things other than Jesus. And, and there's some things that I keep private because they're embarrassing. Uh, that doesn't mean they're a savior, which I completely agree. But these are ways we can help expose and identify what the gods are in our culture. Another way to identify someone's idols is to simply see what makes them angry. You know, there is certainly righteous anger, but many times our anger is not righteous. And so when someone gets angry, usually it's because their idol is being threatened or taken away. For example, in the story of Jack that I shared with you earlier, he was angry and bitter because his God, his idol, his girlfriend was gone. In our community group, we talked this past week about how when the Packers lose, spousal abuse skyrockets. Why? Because idols are threatened. And so we identify cultural idols by observing what people say, what they post in their cubicle, what they post on Facebook. And we see what controls their life, what they center their life around. Now, when we identify these false gods, we are also called to despise the lordship of these false gods. In verse 16, we read that Paul sees the idols and that he is provoked. This term provoked means to arouse to anger, to scorn, or to despise. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, this word is used to explain how God felt towards his people when they chased after other gods. And so I think it's fair to say that Paul's provoked being provoked to anger and to sadness is driven by love. It's love for the people of Athens and love for his God. He was heartbroken to see the Athenians placing their hope and their devotion to false gods that offered no life and no salvation. Furthermore, he was heartbroken that these false gods were receiving the worship that should have been intended for the one true God. And so we are called, like Paul, to despise, not these, not these gods necessarily, because some of these gods are our children, which we shouldn't hate other people's children, but we can hate the control that they have over people and how they enslave people. But finally, we also see, as we contemplate these gods, we are also called to challenge these false gods. You know, Christians have this ten tendency of identifying people's idols, and then dismissing the person altogether instead of engaging them. Christians often distance themselves from others, saying things like, either out loud or in their head, oh, that person is enslaved to politics, or they always talk about politics, so I want nothing to do with them, or they're so arrogant or prideful, I just don't want to be a part of their life. Or we can say, these folks, they oppose God so strongly, I just, I don't think I should even be in relationship with them. You see, instead of engaging culture and challenging the false gods, we Christians many times have a tendency to run away to our holy huddles of like-minded people. Now, Paul certainly could have done that. Paul could have come into Athens 
And I'm sure it was intimidating to be surrounded by very smart people and this great, this, these great structures. Paul could have walked away and said, these people are, are ridiculous. They don't know what they're doing. They're, they're blind. He could have taken off. He could have ignored it. But he didn't. Rather, he loved the people so much that he challenged their false gods by reasoning with them. Verse 16 again says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Just a quick note, Athens, probably more than any other city, had a marketplace that was not just a marketplace of goods, but it was a marketplace of ideas, of philosophies, of theology, of religion. And so Paul goes there to have these conversations. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophies were the most popular of the day. They were hundreds of years old. The Epicurean philosophy basically said, do whatever is pleasurable. The purpose of life is to have pleasure. And so if there's pain, get rid of that. If there's pleasure, run into that. Now, we still have Epicureans today. We still have plenty of people. I know I even, I even see my own tendency to say, I will pursue pleasure and run away from pain. But that was one of the major philosophies, was the Epicurean philosophy. The other was Stoicism. You hear of Stoics today. These were people that were supposed to live life kind of in the medium, not too high, not too low. Pain and suffering would come there to keep their chin up, grin and bear, and just keep pressing through. We, we have Stoics today, and, and sometimes we honor them, but Stoicism is not necessarily a godly attribute. Stoicism could mean that you, were, you are never willing to open your heart and expose the lies that you believe to the light of the gospel, that you keep them buried inside and tell no one because you're stoic. And so this is the culture that Paul is speaking into, a culture in which these philosophies have been established for hundreds of years. And so he comes bringing these new ideas, and they thought he was talking about two gods, one God being Jesus, the other God being resurrection, but he was bringing one God, and they call him a babbler, which means a seed picker. It's like a chicken that goes around and picks seeds. It was a derogatory statement saying that Paul, like a chicken, was pecking at seeds of philosophy and religion and then coming and spewing them out without really ever thinking about them. You know, this is a great reminder to us that the same thing happens today. That when we present the true God, when we present Jesus and the resurrection, especially in philosophical, in academic settings, people will try to undermine the intellectual credibility of our faith. Verse 19. And they took him, Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This Areopagus could either refer to a hill called the Hill of 
Ares or Mars Hill, or this Areopagus could refer to the community that met there. It would be like the city council, the judicial body who would, who would govern and dictate education and moral matters and religion. And so Paul goes and he tells them, he challenges their gods. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In contemplating the false gods of Athens, Paul does not just identify them. He despises the lure and deception of them. But then he actually has the audacity, the God-given audacity, to show up and challenge them. In the synagogues, in the marketplace, even before the Areopagus, to challenge the shortness, the short-sightedness of these false gods and to proclaim the living God. A couple years ago, I was watching a movie called, um, so I just lost my sermon. That's all right. We'll see what happens. Uh, a couple years ago, there we go. Uh, I was watching a movie called Hardball with Keanu Reeves. Anyone ever seen that movie? Okay, it's not that good of a movie. It's all right if you haven't seen it. But in this movie, Keanu Reeves is kind of this aimless young man, and he, he's stuck in alcoholism and in gambling, and, and the guy comes to collect his debt, and he doesn't have the money. So he runs to a friend and says, hey, can you loan me this money? And the friend says, I will loan you this money on one contingency. You have to coach this little league team. Now, the little league team that he was asking him to go coach was the worst team in the city of Chicago and the worst part of Chicago in Caperny Green. Did I say that right? Caprini Green? Yeah, that place. We'll just say that. How about that? And so, so he has to go and he has to, he has to coach his team. Well, you can imagine how the story goes, right? That's why it's made into a movie. And so he goes and he shows up time after time to coach his team. And when he first gets there, they're out of order. They're rude. They're mean. They're horrible. But as they continue to show up at practice time and time and time again, they grow together, they get better, and they start winning games. And so at the end of the movie, he kind of tells them how they have affected his life, how they have changed his life. And he says, what I've learned from you is that really one of the most important things in life is showing up. And he says, I'm blown away by your ability to show up. Now, I know this may seem extremely simple, but I think one of the most difficult parts of engaging our culture with the good news of the gospel is simply showing up with the good news of the gospel. You know, the easiest thing is to be indifferent towards people's false worship or to criticize them and walk away from them but Paul calls us and God calls us to engage our culture with the one true and living God by challenging the false gods of our culture. And so let me ask, if you're here and you are a Christian, if you, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, let me ask, are you showing up? Are you showing up anywhere with the good news of Christ? In the marketplace, in the neighborhoods, within your family unit, are you showing up with the hope of the gospel? Are you identifying the false gods and how they're enslaving people and grieving that and challenging those idols with Jesus? We must not succumb to our fears of rejection or our apathy or our busyness, 
But God calls us to show up with the good news of Christ and the one true God. Now, how do we challenge these false gods? Well, we challenge them by comparing them to the one true God. Verse 22. Again, so Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. As you can imagine, Athens is full of altars, full of of, of temples built to gods. And so there Paul is, and he is challenging these gods. And he's saying, I know that there is this unknown God. They probably put it there to make sure they didn't offend some God that they overlooked. So they have this, this, this temple, this statue to the unknown God. And here Paul seeks to uncover that true God by comparing him with all their other false gods. And so you can imagine Paul there on Mars Hill, standing up with these people below and all of these majestic temples around him. And he says this in verse 24, the God who made the world in everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is challenging the gods of the Athenians by comparing them to the one true God. First, he starts with comparing their creative power. Paul is implicitly here, but more explicitly later, pointing out that the gods of Athens were created by men. Again, we'll read later that they were created of gold and silver and stone. But Paul says, I want to tell you about another God. I want to tell you about the true God, this unknown God to you. He was not created by man, but rather he was the one who created man. The Lord God is the uncreated creator of the entire universe. And their gods the Athenian gods, they were, they were dependent on man to take care of them, to sustain them. They needed men to build temples for them so that they could seek shelter from the elements. They needed people to dust them off when they got dirty. They needed people to reconstruct them when they were broken or worn down. But Paul says, let me tell you about a God, a greater God, a bigger God, a God that does not live in temples, a God that is not subject to man creating him or dependent on man to sustain him. Rather, I want to tell you about a God who controls all things and created all things. And so this is what Paul is doing here. Paul is comparing these gods and he's saying a God that is dependent on us to create him and sustain him and take care of him is really no God at all. But the true God is the God who is creator and sustainer of all of creation. The prophet Isaiah actually has a little funny part in it in which he is exposing these same lies of false gods. And he talks about how a man will cut down a cedar tree 
And he'll take half of the cedar tree and he'll use it to start a fire to warm himself, to cook his burgers and his bratwurst and to eat. And then he'll take the other half of that very same tree, of that very same piece of wood, and he will carve a God out of it. And he will bow down and he will worship and he will say to this block of wood, deliver me for you are my God. A God that is dependent on you is no God at all. A true God must be a bigger God than us. And Paul continues and he shows that God is not only creator and sustainer, but he is also the divine orchestrator of all things. Verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And this description of them seeking and trying to feel their way towards him, he is describing blind men that are looking and grasping to find things. And this is exactly what they did in Athens all the time. They, they talked about philosophies. They were trying to figure out who God is all the time. But their problem was is that they were trying to create a God in their image instead of looking for the God who created them in his image. And so we learn here, Paul says that God is not far from each one of us. This is a great truth of hope, that he's not far from the worst of sinners, that you don't have to clean your act up, clean your life up to be connected to this God, to worship this God, to enjoy this God, but he is close to each and every one of us, no matter who we are. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. God is not only creator and sustainer and orchestrator of mankind, he is also the image caster. Paul does not quote Old Testament books to these Athenians. He knows that they won't know them or be familiar with them or give them any authority. And so he goes even to his own, their own philosophers to show the glimmers of truth, the glimmers of gospel truth that are in those poets that they so much respect. And so he goes to a specific poet to quote in which they have this understanding that they had come from God, that in some ways they are image bearers of God. And so he comes to them and he says, listen, if, if we are such sophisticated beings and your gods are made of gold and silver and stone, how could we possibly be made in their image? How could we possibly be their offspring? They're not moving. They're not thinking. They're not doing anything. But because we are image bearers of God, because we are God's offspring, this God must be a living God. See, the problem with the Athenians wasn't that they thought God was too big, but that they thought God was too small. Small enough that they could create him, care for him, house him, understand him. This past Friday, we had our first Theology 201 class right over there in the living room, and we all agreed it should have been called Theology 801 because it was pretty sophisticated. And as we sat there and as we mauled over the truths of who God is, 
it, it, was, it was frightening. Um, we, were, we were trying to figure out, okay, so, so God is sovereign over all things, over every single thing, every, every little thing God is sovereign over and control over all things. And yet he's not the author of sin, and yet he does not take away the freedom of our will. And so how do those three things work together? We're like, we're guessing, we don't know. Or, or, or you know, like, like we live in time, but God is outside of time and he sees it all at once. And, and so you start to think about it. As we're looking around the room, you see people's heads start bursting, right? Like, like our brains are exploding. It would get very messy if this actually happened. But, but, but that's what's happening because God is so much bigger than we can comprehend, than we can understand. And so we're all walking out of this room, at least me, with headaches trying to understand and comprehend the greatness of God. And so I give this quote that I heard earlier in the week, and I think I probably misquoted it, but I looked it up. It's by a woman named Evelyn Underhill. And she says, If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. I think the apostle Paul would say it this way. If God were small enough to be created by man, sustained by man, controlled by man, that God would not be big enough to be worshipped by man. And so let me ask you, how big is your God? How big is your God? Is your God small enough that you can fit him in your pocket or in a statue in your backyard? Even very practically, how big is your God? Do you stress out over all sorts of things? Are you, are you, are you overwhelmed with anxiety? Or do you trust that our God is big and that he has all things in his control? Shortly after uh, we planted Jakeswell Church, I remember little Anya Barstow. I don't know if she's here or not, but uh, she was probably six years old and we were at Green Bay Community Chapel. And I still remember where I was in the back of that chapel. And she walks up to me, this sweet little six-year-old girl, and she says, Pastor Dan, can you explain the Trinity? And I looked at her thought for like 30 seconds and was like, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I, I, mean, I can tell you things about three persons, one guy. I could, but, but the Trinity, I mean, there are things beyond our comprehension because God is bigger than our brains. Amen? And so we are called to worship and to enjoy and to proclaim this big God, one that is bigger than the gods of our culture. Finally, not only are we called to contemplate the false God and compare them to the true God, we are also call people to the coming God. Verse 30, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. Let me pause there just for a second. What it's saying here is that when you went to worship false God, God did not immediately smite you, right? He didn't immediately kill you as you deserved. He didn't punish you for chasing after other gods, but God was patient and gracious and loving, and he sustained you that you might know the true God. Matter of fact, 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10 talks about it. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, promise of coming back as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, wishing that none should perish, but that all should repent and trust in Christ. And so he is saying, God has been gracious not to punish you for your idolatry, but that you could trust in Christ. Again, verse 30, but times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. You know, we need to notice here that God does not ask people to repent. He does not encourage people to repent. He commands we repent. That everyone, all people everywhere need to repent. And the question is why? Why, why do we need to repent? Well, it's because all of us, all of us have chased after false gods. All of us have, have hearts that are idol factories. And we worship things besides the true God. We have committed treason against God, adultery against God. We have betrayed God. And so God says, repent, turn away from those false gods, confess them to me, and come to the true and living God who can provide salvation for your soul. Turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who died on the cross to take on all of your adultery, all of your idolatry. Because Christ is coming. God commands repentance because although God by his grace had not yet smited them, his judgment day is coming. A day in which Christ will come and judge the living and dead. A day in which all sinful actions will be exposed before a holy God and all of them will be punished in full. And so he calls us to repent, to trust in Christ, to give our sin to Jesus, that we can stand before God holy and without sin, that we might be accepted him for all eternity. Christ has not yet returned because Christ is waiting for you, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your family, to trust and to know and to be saved by him. Now, we may ask the question, how do we know Jesus is coming back? I mean, he said this 2,000 years ago. I mean, maybe he changed his mind or, or maybe he's not really God. Maybe he's not really coming back. How do we know that Christ is coming back 2,000 years later? How do we know today that he's coming back? Verse 31 again says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And on this, he has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. How do we know Christ will come back from heaven? Because Christ came back from the grave. Christ will come again because Christ is not dead. He is alive. And the one who came back from the dead will come back from glory to complete his work of redemption in which he will exterminate all false idols, all false idol worship. He will exterminate sin and death and mourning and pain. And he will give us a new heavens and new earth in which everything is perfectly glorious, happy, and holy. And so we know that Christ will come again because he has been risen from the dead. I don't know if you've ever played that game catchphrase where you have that little circle and you hit it and you try to describe something without using the word. People guess it and, and you get it and you're like nervous because, oh, I don't know when the buzzer's going to go off and you hit it and you pass it and then, and then you pass it and you're like, whew, man, it's passed me good. You don't know when the timer's going to go off. We have no idea when Christ is coming back. We could be the early church. We could be the last days of the church. Today could be the last day of the church. We have no idea. We have no idea. Christ could come back before I'm done with this sentence. He didn't. Okay. But he could come back on your drive home or, or when you're mowing the lawn or when you're asleep. And so there is an urgency here. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, trust in him today. 
Repent of your sins. Because when he comes, there will be no more opportunity. He will come like a thief in the night, the scripture says. And so trust in Christ as your Savior. Repent of your sins because God loves you and cares for you. Let me end with the end of this passage. You know, as we engage our culture, as we befriend our neighbors and coworkers and even our family, and as we seek to dislodge them from the tyranny of false gods and proclaim to them the true God, there is always three responses that are possible. We see this really throughout the book of Acts. We see this in Athens. We see this today. Here are the three responses to Paul's proclamation of the true God. Verse 32, first response. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It's the first response, mocking, rejection. Second response, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Some want to know more. Some want to investigate. And then the third response. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Aeropagite, I should have practiced that, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. And so there's the third response. Some believe, some trust in Christ, some are saved, some are ready to meet their maker on judgment day. As maybe you know, this past summer when I was on sabbatical, um, I was focused on helping to put together a curriculum to share the good news of Christ with our friends and our neighbors and things like that, to move us outward and out of our comfort. And so after a lot of reading, a lot of studying, I put together this thing called the Journey Evangelism Study. Many of you have heard about it. But with this study, the first thing you do is you go out and you survey people, trying to, you listening to hear, to understand what they believe, understanding what their gods are, and also understanding what their spiritual journey is. And then at the end of that, you say, hey, would you like to see how the Bible tries to answer these very big, important questions? And so that's kind of how it goes. And at the end of the four-week study, there's an opportunity for them to repent and trust in Christ as their Savior. Well, last summer, I kind of had this pilot program with these ladies, these poor ladies, probably five or six ladies. And one of those ladies' name was Jan. And I followed up with Jan and wanted to kind of get her testimony of, of going through that program and if she would recommend it to others. And she recorded it on video, so I think it's okay to share publicly. But Jan shares about how when she signed up for this evangelism class, she didn't really realized that she was actually going to have to do evangelism. And that um, if she knew she had to do evangelism, she probably would have never signed up for the class. But she signed up for the class, and she's a rule follower. And so she went out to interview people to understand their spiritual journey story and what they believe and things like that. So she went out, and she did this. And, and one of those, some of them said yes, some of them said no. But, but one woman that God had put on her heart was her neighbor. And Jan thought to herself, there is no way my neighbor will ever say yes to doing this survey. But she went over and she asked her, and sure enough, she says yes to doing the survey. And as she's going through this survey, asking 10 really wonderful questions that everyone should think about, she's thinking in herself, there's no way she'll do this four-week study with me. I mean, there, there's no way. But she gets to that, and she says, would you like to see how the Bible tries to answer these questions? And much to her surprise, she says yes. And Jan's like, oh no, what am I going to do? So she gets her first book. She takes her first book. They, make, they meet for the first time. 
And the husband shows up and they say, can my husband be a part of this? And Jan's like, sure. So they read back through the whole first book. And then they continue on for four weeks. And in the fourth week, there is this part where it talks about, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, that you deserve his displeasure? Do you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? And it gives you an opportunity to pray to receive Christ into your heart. And so there Jan is, she's with the book, and she's sheepishly saying, listen, I am not a salesperson. Like, I don't want to talk you into anything. I'm the worst salesperson in the world. And so like, like, if you want to do this, if you want to pray this prayer, feel free to do it on your own time. We don't have to do it here, you know. And she's kind of, you know, making apology for all this. And, and the, the husband says, I want to pray this right now. And the wife says, me too. And so they were there praying to trust in Christ for their salvation. And then the conversation continues and he says, man, I wish we had a neighborhood Bible study. We'll host it. Well, host the Bible study. And so, so Jan and her husband, Mike, led this Bible study that just finished, and I haven't caught up with them. But what you see is that Jan went out. Jan went out boldly and courageously. She showed up with the good news of the gospel. And some people received it and contemplated it. Some people rejected it. But others trusted in Christ for their salvation. And so let me ask this question. Are the first two responses worth the third? Absolutely. And yet I think those first two responses keep us from showing up with the good news of the gospel. And so God is calling us to engage our culture, our culture filled with false gods that promise life but never deliver, and to give to those that we love the good news of Christ and the salvation that is offered through him. Let's pray. Lord, I, I confess my own apathy towards something that is so precious to you, Lord. I get so busy and I think I, I don't have time for this, Lord. Because I prioritize things above your kingdom. And so I pray that you'd forgive me and for all here who resonate with that prayer, Lord. God, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, that they would know the urgency of Christ's coming and that they would trust in you, Lord and that they would find salvation and peace in your Son. But for the rest of us, Lord, I pray this week, today, that we would show up, that like Paul did, we would engage people, that we'd have conversations with them, that we would understand what they believe and, and why they believe it, but then also show them the true God, the greater God, the better God, because you are the only God that will save. You're the only God that will give us life. You are the only God worthy of our worship. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that this salvation that you offered did not come free, but it came at great cost to yourself, the cost of your only son who came and took on our idolatry and paid for it at the cross in full and then raised from the dead to give us newness of life and the promise of heaven. Pray, God, as we participate in this sacrament, that you would grow our affections, that you would nourish us to love you and to cherish you more and to show up in our places where you have providentially put us with the good news of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.